Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Hello and welcome to this Library of Mistakes podcast. My name is Russell Napier and I'm the keeper of the Library of Mistakes. What is it? What is this Library of Mistakes? Well, it's a room full of books. Yes, one of those things. We have one in Edinburgh, in Lausanne in Switzerland and Pune in India. The Library of Mistakes is owned by Dadasco, a financial education charity based in Scotland. As well as running the Library of Mistakes, it also runs a course, an online course that you can take called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets. And it's in-person variety, which we run in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the course, see the link to Dadasco in the podcast show notes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Library Mistakes podcast. And today I'm delighted to have with me Duncan Maven, author of The Pyramid of Lies. This is the only the second book in finance I think I've read at one sitting because it reads like a ripping yarn come thriller. But it's the story of Lex Greensill and the billion dollar scandal, a story which continues to, to play out and will no doubt play out in the courts in, in, due, uh, in due course. It's an incredible read. I don't just say that. It says on the front cover from Bradley Hope, incredible, an incredible story, but one that was largely hidden. So what we're going to do today uh, with Duncan, we're going to sort of begin by establishing what uh, Greensill was actually up to, as opposed to what it said it was up to, but more importantly, look at all those great firms in finance that got involved in this uh, pyramid of lies that didn't see through it, and try and see if we can find some red flags, the red flags that tipped Duncan off to this fairly early, uh, but also other red flags that were there that will hopefully help us in the future. So, Duncan, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks a lot. What a story. So what did Greensill tell everybody it was doing? Remember, at one stage, I think it was expected to list with a $40 billion valuation. And how did that contrast with what the uh, Greensill was actually up to? Yeah, it's a good place to start because, uh, you know, like many uh, corporate scandals, that inherently it's about saying you're doing one thing and actually doing something else. Um, so what, what Greensill was supposed to be doing was uh, something called supply chain finance, which is uh, not particularly new. It's a, it's a form of banking that's been around in some, in some ways for, for hundreds of years. Uh, Lex Greensill said he was going to do this in a, a new kind of technology-driven way. Supply chain finance is essentially lending to uh, companies based on transactions. So you, you sort of insert yourself between a supplier and a buyer of goods. And while usually a buyer w- wants to pay for something, you know, when they get around to it, and a supplier wants to have its money paid as soon as possible, uh, those two things are sort of in conflict. And so the, the provider of supply chain finance gets in between the two and says, well, look, I'll pay you supplier up front and I'll get the money back later from the buyer and I'll take a cut. And what Lex was trying to do was say, I can do this in a technology-driven way, which means I can do it to lots and lots of different companies, and many more transactions can be financed this way than had been done in the past. Uh, that was exciting to a lot of uh, investors. Um, it meant, you know, investors in Greensill itself who thought that, you know, this is going to be a, a massive, massive business. Um, he was also financing that. Remember, he's not really a bank. He doesn't have a lot of money like, a, you know, like a traditional bank. So he was financing that by taking those transactions to somebody else, um, typically a big bank, and saying, look, if you'll give me the money, I'll finance this. You'll get a cut and I'll get a cut. So that's what he was supposed to be doing. In, in reality, he was doing some of that. 
but it just wasn't very profitable at all. Uh, in fact, it was loss-making for the most part. The banks do this business a little bit, but not that much because it doesn't make much money. So Lex was doing this thing. It wasn't making much money. So on the side, in order to make some money, make some profit, he was also just making loans to friends and family and other businesses that were not very profitable themselves, which meant he could charge them high interest rates in theory. Um, and then packaging all this stuff up together, so the, the supply chain finance, which is sort of transaction-backed financing stuff, with these high-risk loans and tell, telling investors this is all the same thing. In reality, obviously, it's two, separate, two totally different types of things, and one is much riskier than the other. Yeah, so basically he was taking a lot more credit risk than anybody worked out. And we, we know what I was trying to establish, why nobody worked out just how much credit risk he was taking. Uh, 2014 is a good place to start because key to this is actually a bank uh, which uh, they bought back in 2014. A German bank regulated by uh, a German regulator. Also, it got a credit rating from a German, uh, it got an uh, investment-grade credit rating from a German uh, credit rating agency, and obviously would have had to have an auditor as well. So so maybe you can explain, and 2014 is a long time before things finally fell apart. The bank grew like Topsy. Uh, I think it had about 340 million in assets when a billion uh, million in euros when uh, he took it over. It ended up at nearly 4 billion euros. Uh, what happened in that bank? How did he use it? And did you get any insight as to how the auditor, the regulator, and the credit rating agency didn't pick up in what was going on in this German bank, which was such a played such a key part in the whole group and the whole pyramid of lies. Yeah, the, so the German bank is critical. Yeah, it's a, it's absolutely critical to the way Greensill works because the, what it does is it provides a source of funding for the these deals that he's doing. Um, and you know, as I said earlier, he doesn't he's not a bank himself. He doesn't have access to lots of cash. So he's always looking for places to get it. Um, he acquired the German bank for not very much money. It was a, it was a bank that had been around decades, actually, and, and never been a very big, successful bank. Or quite frequently, it had problems with the regulators and uh, flirted with bankruptcy and so on. So he takes he, he buys this bank. Um, what he did, what he was successful there with was being able to sort of go out to, um, in particular, a lot of German municipalities and get them to put their money into the bank, put their deposits in and offer just a little bit more interest than they would have got somewhere else. So, you know, again, this is sort of typical of a lot of corporate scandals, right? He's sort of saying, look, this is a low risk thing. Put your deposits in here. I'll give you a little bit more than you'll get elsewhere. And, you know, people uh, often find that that's appealing. Um, just a little bit more interest, a little bit more of a return. And so he, he, he manages to grow this bank exponentially, as you, as you said, you know, really, really fast. Um, he also uses some of the money that's invested into Greensill Capital by a couple of big investors to, to boost the bank's coffers. Um, and what it, what it means is he's got this sort of, he's got this place where he can park some of these, these loans that he's made if they go wrong, you know, you can, it sort of helps him with a bit of a shell game of shuffling loans around when things go wrong, takes them out of a fund where it might be sort of highlighted by a, you know, a fund investor and put it into his German bank where nobody's really paying as much attention. And, and to your point about, you know, who's, who's looking and why, why didn't they find anything? 
Um, it's a really good question. You know, I mean, the German regulator has a sort of history of missing things. Um, he, one of the things Lex does uh, quite well is appeal to uh, regulators or politicians and get them involved in his business. So there are, there's at least one very senior German regulator or ex-regulator who comes to work at the bank. Um, and so, you know, that helps him. It makes people feel more comfortable and gives them some credibility. Um, the, uh, the, the auditors and the, and the rating agency definitely play a role. So the rating agency uh, is you know, very much sort of on Greensill's side. It's, it's telling the world that everything there is kind of, uh, you know, it's given a stamp of approval. Um, in reality, they, they also highlight one or two problems with, one of, with some of the loans. The rating agency there, uh, it's a company called Scope, was one of the first places I saw uh, to sort of highlight Lex Greensill and Green, Greensill Capital and Greensill Bank's exposure to a guy named Sanjeev Gupta, who is this sort of Indian steel um, magnate who has um, borrowed a lot from Lex. The, the scope said, you know, the, the, the bank has got a lot of exposure to uh, one business and it didn't didn't name Sanjeev Gupta, but it was clear to anybody who's paying attention which business that was. So so they're sort of, you know, they don't they don't say this is a real red flag and this is going to cause a meltdown of the company, but they do at least acknowledge that there is a potential problem there. Well, it's, it's kind of astounding because it is much later in the story, but at one stage the rating agency says two-thirds of all the loans are to one group of companies. And th- and that still doesn't seem to stir the regulator into action. And I can't imagine being a banking regulator uh, and that not being like the biggest possible red flag you could ever see. And yet somehow nothing happened. Uh, yeah. I'll just leave that there because I think that will remain a mystery for a while yet. Uh, so we started this in 2014 when when he, he got hold of the bank. But when did you get involved and what was the first, maybe not big red flag, but little red flags that came to your attention that had you pursuing a different story for Greensill than some of the major financial institutions, regulators and auditors were about to to talk about. So that, let's help everybody out. What what was it uh, that you thought, well, this just doesn't smell right? Yeah. So I, I started looking at Greensill about four years ago now. Um, and uh, at the time, I, you know, I've been a financial journalist for many years. I was an accountant before that. Um, I was mostly working at the time on kind of management type stuff at, at the Wall Street Journal and, and, and Dow Jones and various publications we owned. Um, I was also working with a couple of investigative journalists and kind of keeping my hand in some journalism. And uh, there was an unfolding scandal at a company called GAM, which is a big uh, Swiss asset manager. Some people might call it a hedge fund. Um, GAM had this problem where uh, one of the portfolio managers who managed a huge fund was accused of wrongdoing. And I wasn't paying an awful lot of attention to it, to be honest. I, I sort of knew some people there, but it wasn't part of my job at that point to really pay attention to it. Until one day, um, a good source of mine, a long-term source, came to me and said, have you been looking at this thing? And I, I said, well, not really. I've been reading, you know, read stuff like everybody else who, who covers finance. And uh, this person said, you really should pay a bit more attention to it and, and provided me with a couple of documents. And in it, it became really clear, in these documents, it became really clear that 
the source of the scandal at GAM was, yeah, it was part, partly to do with this, this portfolio manager, but it was entirely to do with his relationship with this company, Greensill Capital. And I, I'd never heard of Greensill at that point. So I started to dig into them and, and found, you know, actually there were quite a lot of people who were pretty skeptical on Greensill Capital. And yet this company had grown really fast. I also found out at that point that it had some pretty strong political connections, especially in the UK. Um, and it just, it just all started to feel a bit odd. You know, there, there were loans that weren't what they said they were, you know, they, these it wasn't supply chain finance, it was other stuff. When I spoke to people who knew Greensill Capital, um, either because they were rivals or because they were clients or potential clients or p- partners, provided insurance and that kind of thing, the, they all sort of, you know, uh, looked away or looked looked a little bit sort of, well, do we really want to talk about this? And um, it sort of, you know, it was just clear there was something a bit wrong with this company. So I started digging in and, you know, it it wasn't really that hard. Uh, You didn't need amazing investigative skills to find red flags at Greensill Capital. Yeah, so the whistleblower, uh, I think, at GAM on all these deals appears in 2017. And you name him in the book as uh, Daniel Sheard. What is the remarkable thing is what happens after 2017? Because after that, we have two major uh, highly respected investors who put capital into the company at high valuations, one being General Atlantic associated with the incredible Chuck Feeney uh, and obviously the the Vision Fund. Uh, And one wonders what due diligence there was if they didn't pick up what was actually in the public domain, which was this questionable relationship between uh, GAM and and Greensill Capital. Uh, Any idea what went on? How how was this? I mean, I think it was 2018 when General Atlantic was taking this stake and they seem to have missed the GAM story in the link. Uh, I mean, they're a a very reputable and highly renowned company. So did you get any insight as to how they missed some of these early red flags, albeit early red flags? Yeah. So General Atlantic had been sort of interested in uh, payments businesses. They were really interested in technology driven payments businesses for a while. They, they were sort of thought that was part of the future, you know, and, they decided to, to track several of them. And Greensill was one of these kind of new technology uh, payments businesses they were looking at. And so they were kind of familiar with Lex for a few years. They'd sort of, you know, some of their staff, their analysts would show up at um, industry events and things, and Lex would be on stage and he'd, he'd be talking about democratizing finance and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they, they knew him. They, they had met with him a few times. And, you know, of all the people who were doing this kind of thing, he probably was the most charismatic. He had these interesting connections into uh, government. He, you know, appeared to, you know, he was a really driven kind of visionary type guy. And so they they were really interested in him. And I think what, what happened there was they realized there were some some issues, some challenges with Lex and with Greensill Capital. They realized he was he was a guy who was sort of pushing the envelope, and some other people in the industry weren't comfortable with with some of the things he was doing. And in fact, I know they talked to people who said, "Don't invest in this guy." Um, but I think they thought that um, you know that, that that was part of their job. That, that that their job as a big private equity investor was to take difficult founders of businesses and shape them 
and help them grow their business in a more, you know, uh, credible, uh, more thorough, well-governanced manner. And so I think they looked at Lex and said, yeah, here's a guy who's got some challenges. There are some red flags here, but with our help, he can grow this business you know, really, really in a, in a much more sensible way. I mean, they were wrong. And I think if you ask them now, they would, they would acknowledge that. Um, but that was, I think the, the, the discussion was, was of that nature. So they, they come in, they put a, you know, $250 million in an awful lot of money to a company at that point. It hasn't made any profit. And it, as you say, is embroiled in this scandal at GAM. You know, I think they were aware of what was happening at GAM, but kind of, wrote it off as a, as a GAM issue rather than a green cell issue. Maybe they hadn't quite seen some of the documents I'd seen, but, um, you know, a bit of digging would have shown them that it was definitely a green cell issue. So, but, but their investment is, uh, you know, it's a real stamp of approval, real credibility. They're, they're known as a, among the investment community as, as, as people who, who don't take a big risk. Well, that, that was that was kind of the remarkable thing about this. So they now value the company at one point seven billion, and as you said, it's a stamp of approval. And of course, the one that really makes you sit up and pay notice comes one year later when the Vision Fund gets involved. And in the course of eight weeks of due diligence, they put in eight hundred million and value the company at three point five billion. Now, in, in your book, uh, I'll let you maybe use the right phraseology. The due diligence by the Vision Fund seemed to be really based on the, what they, they thought the due diligence had been by General Atlantic. Is that an unfair? I mean, the, it was due diligence light on the assumption that General Atlantic had already done extensive due diligence. Is that fair or an unfair uh, that, comment? That's that's not just fair, it's totally accurate. I mean, they, they, I don't think anybody there would even sort of dispute that, really. They did their own, they did their own work, but as you said, it was in about eight weeks. It's incredibly fast, right? You, you know, to, to to decide where you're going to put eight hundred million dollars, and then a few months later, another six hundred million dollars in just eight weeks. It, it's just it's just amazing. It's astonishing, um, but it is kind of typical of the Vision Fund, right? That you know, this is a hundred billion dollar fund uh, that makes lots of bets and accepts that some of them won't pay off. Um, and you know, so I think they also were looking to invest in visionary founders fast-growing businesses, tech-driven finance businesses. And so Greensill sort of ticked some boxes. And then also General Atlantic had put some money in. That's almost enough. You know, that, that that's almost enough. There are some skeptics at the Vision Fund who are a bit sort of unsure of, of Lex and they're aware of the scandal at GAM and they go and talk to uh, General Counsel at, at, at GAM and they talk to Lex about it. You know, they don't talk to the whistleblower they don't talk to the CEO at GAM who lost his job over it. Uh, so they talk to the wrong people. And in the end, they're sort of talking to people who are all going to give them the same answer. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, that level of due diligence is, it's incredible that they're, they're sort of so light touch. On the other hand, it is kind of their model, right? Like they, they've got $100 billion. They take lots of bets. A lot of them don't pay off, but the big ones pay off in a big way. So meanwhile, Lex has got a bit of a problem. I mean, the good news is he's got lots of capital coming in and you can hide lots of problems when you've got lots of fresh capital coming in. But there's two parts of this equation. He needs lots of fresh capital for his company, but also he's basically originating and and, and moving paper into the marketplace. GAM is no longer the buyer. Uh, He's in trouble. But suddenly Credit Suisse appear 
maybe you could give us a chronology for when Credit Suisse appeared. But I think at the peak, they held over 10 billion US dollars worth of paper originated from Greensill. So uh, how did that lifeline come along and how did they miss the uh, the issues at, at, at GAM and, and get involved in this? Yeah. Well, Credit Suisse really kind of, you know, that really fuels the growth of this business. And and GAM was, what happened to GAM was kind of existential, right? It should have probably ended Greensill. Um, but he had this kind of overlapping relationship where the Credit Suisse relationship was just starting up as the GAM one was beginning to end. Um, Lex was uh, well known to a couple of sort of senior Swiss bankers or um, actually American bankers with long history in Switzerland and that kind of thing. Uh, former CEO of GAM is a guy named David Solo, who was very well known in, in Swiss finance circles. Um, he So Lex had had an introduction into Credit Suisse and started to build a relationship there. And, you know, so he ends up with a couple of fairly sort of fairly junior portfolio managers there and he's offering them again this this asset class that pays a little bit more than you would get by just depositing your money in a money market fund and he's saying look it's really safe it's based on all these transactions uh you know some of it's with huge companies with like we're lending money to people like coca-cola and boeing um and you know you you'll get a little bit more yield for your clients um, and so he starts to sort of, you know, he's able to bring in lots of assets, which means that the portfolio managers at Credit Suisse are getting paid bigger and bigger bonuses on the back of these, you know, assets that are flooding in. As you say, at one point, it grows to about $10 billion in the, in the funds that are invested in Greensill. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's staggering because actually, a lot of what's going in there isn't supply chain finance. It really is this stuff that's kind of friends and family and loans to businesses that are uh, startup businesses or businesses that have other problems. It's it's almost at times it's like venture capital money, you know, to to people Lex has come across over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's definitely you know it's the opposite end of the risk spectrum to uh, very safe supply chain finance stuff. And, and while and while Credit Suisse Asset Management are buying the paper that Lex is originating, the investment bank is talking about listing his company with a valuation of forty billion uh, US dollars. Yeah, I mean, and this is three years after the GAM affair. I mean, admittedly, he, I think he's grown his revenues by a hundred percent during yeah. two thousand and nineteen. Uh, but you've got both sides of the bank involved in this now. I think it, I mean, it obviously never comes to fruition that it is listed. Uh, but it's interesting that it's the same bank on on both sides of this. Yeah, well, I think you have to sort of look at Credit Suisse at the time had a particular model, which was to sort of go out, go after, pursue as clients, um, entrepreneurs. Uh, the idea was that you know if you could if you could get hold of an entrepreneur as a client, then you could make money off them on your private bank, selling them kind of in services for themselves as individuals. You could go after them on your on your investment bank, selling them kind of services like IPOs and debt raising and things like that. And you could also service, you know, whatever. Like in Lex's case, he's producing assets that you can put into your asset management business. So he's almost, it, it sounds crazy at this point to say this, but he almost feels like a dream client to them. You know, he's, he's, he's providing fees to all the different parts of the bank. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very appealing business. But it does mean that, you know, 
he's got lots of people in different parts of the bank who are willing to back him. So if you if you get somebody in the asset management business who says, I'm not really sure about this, well, he can turn to his private banker who says, No, 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 come on, we're making lots of money. And or, you know, the guy in the investment bank who says, Look, when this IPOs, we're gonna make an enormous amount. So you sort of end up with a situation where lots of different parts of the bank are are really interested in Lex's success. You know, the other thing to remember is at that point, not not anymore, but at that point, SoftBank and the Vision Fund was a big client of Credit Suisse's too. And, um, you know, so he's got this backing of this enormous client of the banks. So he's sort of, you know, deeply embedded with Credit Suisse, albeit at the very senior levels. I don't think many people would have even still heard of Lex Greensill. You know, it came as a bit of a surprise to some people there. Shouldn't have done, but it came as a bit of a surprise when it all went wrong. Now, I imagine one of the things that enticed the asset management side was the guarantees, the insurance on the credit risk, which was being issued. Uh, so as you say, they offered a slightly higher yield. That's one of the oldest stories in finance. Uh, but also they offered, at least on some of the paper, you can explain uh, guarantees by a company in Australia called Bond and Credit uh, Corporation. Uh, so this turns out to be a, play a pivotal role in the whole story and also the down, the ultimate downfall of Greensill. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Bond and Credit Company. I think at its peak, it was offering six point eight billion US dollars in cover on the assets that uh, Greenspan or the debt that Greenspan had originated and moved on into into other funds. So, what was Bond and Credit Company, and why did it was it really the great insurance that the asset management industry thought it was? Yeah, well, you mentioned a couple of things there that are really critical to what happens at Greenspan. I think one is that idea of steady yield. Uh, and that, to me, was a real red flag, right, that these funds were offering steady yield for years and years and years into the future. And, you know, you bring that up with a portfolio manager at Credit Suisse and say, this isn't possible. You know, this is the this is the, the sort of red flag that everybody always spots. And it was amazing to me that they just they just weren't interested in that. They'd sort of they'd in fact, they would sort of throw that back and say, no, no, no! Look, look how great these funds are. They're offering a steady yield, and it's say, like, well, that's the that's the problem. They can't be, um, and so that that was one red flag. But you're absolutely right to point to the insurance. So one of the ways that Lex uh, made this this product, this asset class, uh, work for big investors like pension funds and so on was to to take out trade credit insurance. So he was able, therefore, to to take loans to businesses that themselves were not investment grade, get some trade credit insurance over the top of that, and that would make the the loans investment grade, and that meant pension funds could put their money in. Without it, without the insurance, these these assets, these loans were much less investable for a whole bunch of companies, so a bunch of investors. So the, the, the insurance was absolutely critical. The problem he had was that a lot of insurers were not willing to do business with Lex or, or were or only willing to do a small bit of business with Lex. So the biggest trade credit insurers, he'd fallen out with them all really over a period of several years um, because they'd seen the way he was pushing the envelope and they'd seen the sort of uh, borrowers he was lending money to. Um, so he was left really with this one tiny Australian insurance company called the Bond and Credit Company, which is only a few years old itself. And, and to this day, there's a little bit of a question mark about how much other business the Bond and Credit Company was doing, or was it all Greensill? 
I, I, I've been told it wasn't all green cell, but it was all, most of its business was from green cell capital. And this is a this is a really tiny company. It was a sort of offshoot of an Australian insurer called uh, Insurance Australia Limited. Um, and the bond and credit company was a, just a handful of guys that was in a sort of a, a management run joint venture with Insurance Australia Limited. Uh, and I think the reality was at Insurance Australia, they had no idea what was happening at this offshoot. They had no idea that it was writing so much insurance for green cell capital. Um, then around about uh, 2019, they had Insurance Australia actually sold their stake in the business to a, a Japanese insurer called Tokyo Marine, um, who was huge, a much bigger, much bigger business. Once Tokyo Marine started to look at what the bond and credit company had got into with green cell, they became much more concerned and they started to close that business down and, and, and essentially said, we're not going to do this anymore. And that was really, really crucial to what happened to green cell because without that credit insurance, he can't, he can't get the investors to put money into the funds. And if the investors don't put money into the funds, then ultimately you're going to have to acknowledge that some of the things in there aren't what you said they were. So, so we've got to 2020 now when Tokyo Marine effectively pulled this and then the great unravelling begins. Had they not pulled it, do you think it could have been listed by Credit Suisse at the sort of 40 billion valuation? One of the great things about your book is that Greensill comes close to this many, many times and yet it always wriggles off the hook. You know, the GAM money's not there, they find the Credit Suisse money. The bank is always there to put some assets into the bank. Just when they're running out of capital, they get General Atlantic. Then they get the vision fund. And it was sort of, you got the feeling that he could just always escape this. Uh, yeah, so if Tokyo Marine hadn't taken over bond and credit company, do yeah. you think this would have gone much further? I, I think it's possible, yeah. I, so I, you're right about Lex, uh, Lex's ability to kind of wriggle out of a problem. And in fact, that was kind of cementing his reputation with his his uh, senior staff and with some of the investors that he was a guy who genuinely was a visionary because look at the problems he was able to get out of. You know, the bizarre thing about something like GAM was most of the senior execs there thought this this is going to finish us. And when it didn't, they kind of rally behind Lex because they say, well, this guy really must be a genius to have got out of that scrape. So uh, Tokyo Marine, I think if they hadn't pulled the insurance it may have gone on longer, but ultimately the 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 loans at the that that they were insuring were not not good, and so ultimately there was going to be a problem. Um, I also think with with Lex's character, um, you know, he has got this he's got this sort of trait of pushing the envelope always, and so the likelihood that he would have got into another scrape is pretty high, I think. You know, he, he just has this sort of tendency to run towards sort of problems and always double down on them. Um, so I think, you know, this he, maybe he'd have got out of this time, but there'd have been another one around the corner. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, he was lending a lot of money to businesses that simply couldn't pay it back. Um, so we've, dis we've discussed a lot of the uh, red flags and how they were missed. And, and some of it, you suggested the book comes down to the company that he kept. I mean, he uh, David Cameron's name obviously is clearly associated with with Green. So, did he? Was there certain elements of trust uh, associated with uh, Green Sill because of the connection with the Conservative Party government? 
that you think re- reduced the, the levels of due diligence that others did on the basis that, well, if Lex is in government, and he was never really in government, but he certainly had this patent on his cards and everything else that he was involved with the government. Do you think that was a, a way in which the level of due diligence by all these financial institutions was a little bit lower than it might otherwise have been? Uh, I think, you know, I think that's why he hired David Cameron. So I think, you know, he, he, that was the sole reason for having Cameron there was that he would lend some credibility to the firm that would mean other people would take you more seriously. Um, and indeed, Cameron does open doors. Uh, he opens doors with other governments around the world. Um, he, by the way, he's not the only politician to get involved, right? There are there are others, uh, Australian politicians. Uh, actually, David Blunkett goes on the board of one of the Greensill subsidiaries. So, you know, others also get involved here. I think what's astonishing to me is that, um, you know, it, it wasn't hard to find problems with green cell capital. And yet David Cameron, you know, lends his his reputation to this firm. Uh, I would have thought that when you're an ex-prime minister, the thing you got is your reputation. That's your biggest asset. That's the thing you can sell. And, you know, to sell it to a firm that clearly had some problems was is astonishing to me. Um now, for a long time, I think there were people questioning, people in Greensill Capital questioning the value of Cameron. So they're sort of saying, well, yeah, okay, he's, you know, gets us into the right part. He's at Davos um, and he can, you know, get us to talk to the you know, Prime Minister of Mexico or the President of Mexico. But what 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 is he actually selling for us? That all changed when COVID happened. And suddenly there's a lot of government money available. Uh, for bounce back loans and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, Lex sees that as an opportunity, really says, well, hang on, I can get some of that money. And, you know, that's really good money. That's that's sort of even better than the pension fund money. Um, so let's get some of that. And, and you know, th- that's where Cameron kind of s- the value of Cameron really comes into force because he's able to go directly to government ministers and, you know, other senior civil servants and say, hey, you know, remember me, uh, I'm now working for this company, Green Cell Capital, and we can really help you get the economy running again. In the end, he's he's sort of moderately successful. You know, I guess the interesting thing is that he was only moderately successful and actually got some significant pushback in some circles. That was uh, that was another interesting feature of the book. So uh, uh, we can talk about this all day, but just tell us how it, just tell us how it ends, if you like, and where we are now in terms of civil criminal proceedings. Where is this all going to end up? Do you think? Yeah. So you know, you mentioned Lex wriggling out of things. At the moment, it's unclear where it ends really. There are criminal investigations into Greensill in Switzerland and in Germany. Uh, there's the there's a SFO investigation in the UK into uh, his biggest his biggest client Sanjeev Gupta, and they have named Greensill in that investigation. Um, there are lots of lawsuits flying around, uh, especially between the the trade credit insurer Tokyo Marine and Credit Suisse, uh, and Tokyo Marine have been pretty aggressive in uh, calling out Lex and what they see as wrongdoing. Um, I guess they're saying essentially, you know, we're not going to pay out on any insurance that was written by our our subsidiary now, the Bond and Credit Company, because we believe that 
uh, none of this should have been written and we were there were misrepresentations to us by Greensill Capital. And that's pretty strong. I mean, they've used stronger language than than I've used there, actually. Um, so there's there is an awful lot of, of litigation flying around. Uh, it could go on. You know, I think most people involved in it think this will go on for years. You know, as 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 litigation around financial scandals often does, it will go on for years and years. In the meantime, Lex Greensill himself is still he's still around. He's uh, he's helping Credit Suisse try to recover as much money as they as they can from some of these these former clients of Greensill who who were loaned uh, Credit Suisse clients money. It you know this is where it starts to get really murky for me because now you sort of look and say well Credit Suisse essentially got ripped off by this guy, but their interest at this point is recovering as much money as they can, and so they're working with him. So they you know trying to get Credit Suisse to acknowledge that they got ripped off is is pretty tough because it, it, once they acknowledge they were ripped off, then their chances of recovering the money it, it becomes much harder, um, and you get into that really really challenging world in in finance where when things go wrong, the tendency, I think, is to sweep it under the carpet because it's either humiliating or it's costly or it's both. And so nobody really wants to acknowledge that they were the victims. Well, you've been living with this story for a long time. I wonder if there's going to be a volume two when all of these court cases are, are over and we get uh, some of the more juicy details coming out. Uh, Doug, and congratulations. It's, it really is a great read. It's an incredibly complex subject, but you've managed to Simplified is is uh, is is, uh, is not the right word, but you've managed to make it very understandable, a very driven, great story, and uh, and well done on uncovering it, and well done in pursuing it in the in the you know in the in the face of some significant pressure from major financial institutions who were not so keen that these stones were overturned. So that's it, the pyramid of lies, Lex Greensill and the billion dollar scandal. Uh, I strongly recommend it. Uh, reads like a thriller, almost like an episode of Slow Horses with you as. Uh, you as the main protagonist. So congratulations and thanks for your time on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And to explore the new Library of Mistakes in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our books and keep up to date on what we're up to, do follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice.